All right. Good afternoon. <clears throat> so delighted to see you all here today. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm a Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of our Economic Opportunities Program. And I'm so delighted to welcome you to today's conversation on the future of worker voice. Um, we do like to think of these things as a conversation. And whether you're here in person or joining us via live stream, you can participate in the conversation uh, via Twitter. Our hashtag is TalkGoodJobs. Um, but for those of you who are here in person, please do put your phones on silent. Thank you. Um, and that goes for the panel, too, if you brought your phones up. Uh, <laughs> uh, today's event is part of a series we've been hosting here at the Institute on Working in America. And I would very much like to thank our sponsors for this event, the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Serna Foundation, and the Hitachi Foundation. We couldn't do it without their support. Um, I also want to note that today's conversation is part of a broader uh, set of discussions that we are having at a variety of Aspen Institute forums and in a variety of our work this year looking at the critical challenge of growing income inequality and what that, that challenge is for today's economy, for our society, and, uh, and the challenge it poses to the values and ideals inherent in the idea of the American dream. Um, in the Working in America discussion series, we've been exploring a wide range of issues that affect the lives and livelihoods of working Americans. Um, with particular attention to those in the bottom half of the earnings distribution. And we've looked at a variety of issues from uh, minimum wage and scheduling issues, paid leave. Um, we've thought about the issues particular to specific industries that have concentrations of low wage work. We've thought about different business models and opportunities for um, profit sharing or different forms of business that can create shared prosperity. So we've looked at a whole variety of, of different issues. And if you, this is your first time joining us, um, I encourage you to look at previous conversations. You can find the series at www.as.pn slash working in America. Today's conversation, though, is a little different um, in that it asks not what business or public policy or human service organizations or education organizations can do for working people, but it asks how do working people themselves start to drive the agenda and drive discussions of what the business practices and public policies should be today. Um, how does a country that believes strongly in the value of hard work ensure that the people that do the hard work, their voices and their experiences are central to the conversation and not sidelined? Uh, we think that this is a critical conversation. Uh, historically, as you know, unions have been a, an important voice for working people, but unions represent a smaller and smaller proportion of working people today, and this has really left a void. And so what are the institutions and organizations that are going to fill this void? What is the future of worker voice? We have a terrific panel today to discuss this question, so uh, it's not up to me to answer this very difficult question. <laughs> Uh, and I am going to briefly just put names and faces together for you by way of introduction. You have uh, their bios and your materials. They're a really terrific group of people, so if you're not familiar with them, I encourage you to look at those materials. Um, so let me see what order everybody is sitting in. So uh, furthest uh, to my to my right, to your left, is uh, Judge Laura Safer Espinoza, Executive Director of the Fair Food Standards Council. Uh, next to Laura is Sarita Gupta, Executive Director of Jobs with Justice. Uh, by Sarita is uh, David Rolfe, President SEIU 775 and Founder and Co-Chair of the Workers Lab, and also 
author of the forth forthcoming Fight for 15. Uh, by David is Ruth Milkman, Research Director of CUNY's uh, Murphy Labor Institute and Professor of Sociology. Um, and in a moment, we'll have the opportunity uh, to hear from uh, Cruz Salucio, Senior Staff Coalition of the Imokali Workers. And I also want to thank Julia Perkins from the Coalition of Imokali Workers, who will be providing translation services for Cruz. Uh, but right now, I'm very pleased to uh, turn the agenda over to Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large, The American Prospect, and columnist, The Washington Post, who will provide some framing and launch our discussion today. So Harold? Well, thank you, Maureen, and thank you uh, to the Aspen Institute for uh, having all of these forums, or fora, and uh, for having this one uh, in particular. Uh, I think it's important that these issues get discussed as broadly as possible. Um, I want to begin by referring to an article that my Washington Post colleague, Lydia DePillis, who is a brilliant young labor reporter, had in the Post a few days ago, uh, last weekend, about the uh, uh, drive to unionize the uh, writers and editors at Gawker, the m gossip uh, media website uh, based in New York. Uh, and looking at the demographic there, Lydia wrote that it's possible that just as many uh, dated fashions come back into vogue, unions have taken on a retro cool among millennials. <laughs> now, it would, it would be, I'm sure to everyone on the panel, comforting to think that maybe like vinyl or formica or fedoras, <laughs> uh, unions were going to uh, come back into fashion. But in fact, as Lydia noted, that's not really the crucial differential between Gawker and the rest of the United States. What makes it different is that Nick Denton, the owner and CEO of Gawker, had said in an, an interview that he was, quote, intensely relaxed at the idea of a unionized workforce. This makes <coughs> Nick Denton somewhere at the 0.0001% of owners and CEOs uh, of, of companies facing unionization uh, in the United States. Uh, in fact, as uh, I think some people here may, may recall in uh, earlier battles to uh, change labor law so that workers could join a union without risking their jobs, uh, there were efforts made to recruit CEOs to testify on behalf of changing the law so that a union, for instance, could be ratified as it is in Canada simply by getting a majority of workers to sign union affiliation cards. And the extreme difficulty that was found in tr trying to locate uh, uh, some CEOs, Nick Denton was not yet on the scene, uh, uh, when, when such legislation came up. Uh, the problems of American workers are many and varied. Uh, they include the pressures of globalization and of technology. But crucially as well, I don't want to counterpose any of these. They're all real factors. Crucially as well, the loss of worker power and worker voice, as is evidenced by the fact that the rate of unionization has declined from the mid-30% of the workforce in the 1950s to 11% today and 6.7%, I think it is, in the private sector. 6.7 is 6.6. This is why we have academics <laughs> here. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, it had a brief bump up to 6.7 and then subsided again to 6.6 which for most American workers really is the functional equivalent of zero. You don't have much bargaining power in or out of a union uh, when 93, 94% of uh, your fellow 
employees uh, ha have no union to bargain with. Uh, all of these are uh, all of these are factors. All of these are factors in in the growth of economic inequality uh, in the United States. Uh, the erosion of unions has been a factor uh, that unions themselves have been cognizant of for many years. Every time there has been a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, going back to Lyndon Johnson, there have been efforts made to do things like restrict the spread of right to work laws or increase the penalties. Uh, on employers who uh, violate the National La Labor Relations Act when workers uh, seek to organize. Uh, none of these have, uh, have, have, pa have passed, uh, and unions have uh, become uh, really, in many ways, an endangered species. Uh, and so we live in an era of Plan Bs, or Plans B, uh, for people who want to give uh, workers more power, more voice, and are looking for channels to do this which would not have been considered some years ago uh, when there were still uh, uh, more optimistic prospects for unions as we know them. These plans B range from uh, perhaps America's preeminent labor economist, Richard Freeman of Harvard, uh, talking about how there should be an automatic sharing of, uh, of profits and capital uh, with workers. Uh, to uh, the leading intellectual life back in the day of the Democratic Leadership Council, uh, William Galston, who now says there needs to be a link between wages and productivity increases. There used to be a pretty, uh, used to correspond pretty evenly in the three decades after World War II when unions had power. Uh, that link was severed though in the 1970s and now productivity rises are not matched by uh, wage increases. Uh, it's taken the form, as, as David and others will talk about, of uh, really major attempts uh, by unions uh, to change workers' prospects through legislation by raising the minimum wage, uh, by calling, uh, getting laws to establish paid sick days, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, and we've seen minimum wage hikes get enacted in <coughs> a range of cities and in some states as well. Uh, in some ways, one might almost think that unions sort of casting around for uh, a new model are, are resemble more the old uh, rival to the AFL in the 19th century, the Knights of Labor, <laughs> uh, which anyone could join, which was a major source of pressure for the uh, eight-hour day uh, in the late 19th century, uh, and which, however, collapsed because it didn't have very many workplace con uh, contracts and hardly any dues-paying members. Uh, you cannot go on without dues-paying members, uh, and uh, that's why the AFL is still with us and the Knights of Labor uh, are not. Um, so we're going to hear from these panelists on a range of these alternative perspectives on how to bolster worker power at a time when unions, as Tom Gagan has written, are flat on their back. Uh, it's important long before any of us started talking about the phrase alt-labor, these alternative worker organizations that have sprung up in recent years. It's important to keep in mind that there's a whole classification, a whole groups of workers who are not covered by the original National Labor Relations Act and had no right to form unions. Uh, in recent years, we've seen the form formation of domestic workers doing this and of home care workers. Uh, but the, the largest group originally uh, kept uh, from having the right to form unions was farm workers. Uh, when the National Labor Relations Act was passed, the only way they could get votes uh, from Southern Democrats, from Dixiecrats, to pass it 
was to exclude certain categories of workers and, and for <coughs> reasons of racism and classism, uh, farm workers never made the cut. Uh, on, this left states free to develop their own labor relations law for farm workers, but to date only California under Jerry Brown in his first go-round as governor has, uh, has done that. Nonetheless, there have been really interesting efforts, chiefly in Florida and Ohio, uh, by farm workers and their allies uh, to win better conditions and build their own organizations. Uh, in, in, in Florida, the uh, uh, Coalition of Immokalee Workers, uh, a group of immigrant, largely immigrant workers uh, working in uh, chiefly the tomato uh, fields, uh, were able to put together a coalition that put pressure on uh, the major retail purchasers of, of the crops, uh, fast food outlets and markets and others, uh, and created a structure whereby uh, the benefits of uh, uh, these tomato sales would go through a, a somewhat complex process to the farm workers. It's a really heroic struggle, and we want to begin uh, by hearing from one of those workers, one of the leaders uh, of that organization, Cruz Salucio, who will talk to us, and uh, Julia, Julia will, uh, will, will provide translation. So, Cruz. Gracias. Thank you. Um, bueno, gracias a los que han organizado esta actividad para estar aquí con ustedes. First of all, thank you very much to those who have organized this great event. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Bueno, nosotros como trabajadores, eh, la mayoría de nosotros trabajamos en lo que es la industria agrícola, eh, la industria de tomate en especial en Imokale. For us in Imokale, most of us work as farm workers in the agricultural industry in tomatoes. Por muchos años el trabajador eh, en el tomate era más que nada para los rancheros era visto como máquinas trabajando en la industria agrícola. And for many years, um, as workers were seen by our bosses just as machines. Porque nosotros trabajábamos si nosotros teníamos un problema no podíamos eh, hablar con nadie simplemente el despido del trabajador es lo que pasaba. If we had a problem at work, we didn't have anyone talk to talk to, and if we brought up any problems, the only solution was that we would be fired. Enfrentábamos, por ejemplo, eh, malas condiciones en el trabajo. Enfrentábamos eh, acoso sexual a las mujeres, por ejemplo. También lo que es los bajos salarios y hasta esclavitud moderna eh, florecía en la industria agrícola. And there were many bad conditions, abusive conditions. Um, sexual harassment was rampant for female workers, um, low wages, um, below the poverty level, um, and in the most extreme cases, actual modern day slavery, which flourished in Florida. Otros no podíamos hablar porque cuando tú hablabas, por ejemplo, si trabajadores que trabajaban una semana, dos semanas, hasta un mes en el trabajo no recibía su pago. Si el trabajador tenía que hablar, el siguiente día ya no era llevado a trabajar o simplemente te dicen pues ya no hay trabajo para ti. And if you tried to speak up against something like wage theft, if you'd been working a week or two or even a month and hadn't gotten paid and decided to bring this up to your boss, well the next day you wouldn't have a job at all. Las mujeres por ejemplo tenían que aguantar eh, acoso sexual porque ellas sabían que tenían que poner la comida en la mesa de sus hijos, tenían que aguantar acoso sexual porque si ellas hablaban tampoco no había una respuesta, el siguiente día pues era despedido del trabajo. 
And for women, they had to deal with and, and just accept the sexual harassment that was rampant because they knew that they needed to put food on the table for their families. And so your choice was to speak up and lose your job or to continue to work um, and be harassed every day. Nuestra voz no era escuchado más que nada. Nosotros podíamos hablar con el contratista, por ejemplo, pero esa comunicación llegaba ahí nomás o simplemente con el supervisor y llegaba la voz y ahí se acabó todo. And, and you didn't have any voice. You could maybe speak to your crew leader or maybe a supervisor, but it ended there. Nothing changed. Entonces, viendo todo eso, empezamos a organizarnos como trabajadores, de juntarnos todos y poder concienciar a la comunidad sobre qué hacer para que pues no seamos respetados como trabajadores. And so we as workers decided that we'd had enough of that and we decided to organize, to build consciousness um, in our community and to say enough is enough of the abuses. Entonces eh, empezamos a hacer diferentes acciones en la comunidad, hicimos huelgas de hambre, paros laborales en el trabajo y muchas acciones más, marchábamos de más de 200 millas para llevar nuestra voz a, a las compañías de tomate. And so we did a lot of different kinds of actions to try to get our voices heard. Um, we did community-wide strikes, a hunger strike of 30 days, a march across the state, um, all just to say, here we are, listen to what our problems are. Y uno de los dichos de las compañías, en lugar de responder para mejorar las condiciones de los trabajadores, era simplemente decir de que los tractores no van a decir al ranchero cómo manejar su rancho, por ejemplo. But the response from our bosses, um, from the growers, was um, to improving conditions was, well, a tractor doesn't tell a farmer how to run his farm. Claramente, ahí vemos cómo era la, el pensamiento más que nada de los rancheros en respecto a los trabajadores. So there, very clearly, we see the mentality of the growers towards their workers. Nosotros no nos bajamos la guardia, tuvimos que seguir luchando y empezamos a ver que hay otros caminos, teníamos que enfrentar eh, a ver lo que es el, eh, la campaña por comida justa, ya enfocándonos más que nada con los grandes eh, compradores de, de tomate. Um, but we didn't give up, we didn't put our heads down, we kept fighting and we launched what we call the Campaign for Fair Food, where we decided to use the power of the market, the large buyers of tomatoes, to change the conditions that we were facing. Entonces, eh, gracias al apoyo de toda la gente, estudiantes, diferentes iglesias a nivel nacional, organizaciones, grupos, empezamos a salir de nuestra comunidad para hablar con la gente, concienciar del problema que había en Imocali, y así de esa forma, hoy en día tenemos 13 corporaciones trabajando junto con nosotros para garantizar derechos para los trabajadores. Um, and thanks to our allies, to students across the country, to many um, faith groups, to community organizations, and to um, many um, unions, we were actually able to to reach that and today we're glad to say we have 13 major corporations who've agreed to only buy from farms that agree to treat workers right and to participate in the fair food program. Ellos han tomado el <laughs> se han comprometido más que nada a poder pagar un poquito más por el tomate que compra a los trabajadores. Eh, también garantizar que haya derecho para los trabajadores. So they've agreed to pay a little bit more for those tomatoes that they buy, um, and that money goes directly to workers in their paychecks, and to also support and stand behind the rights of workers, to speak up. Ahorita tenemos cuatro partes importantes en esto. Tenemos a los trabajadores en la mesa, tenemos a los rancheros en la mesa, tenemos también 
a las 13 corporaciones trabajando junto con nosotros y aparte de eso hemos creado también el Consejo por Comida Justa para verificar y también monitorear que los derechos que hemos logrado se cumplan en lo, lo que es la industria. And there are four parts to the fair food program. There are workers at the table being heard. There are growers at the table. Um, there are the 13 corporations who are only buying from growers who are participating. And there's the Fair Food Standards Council whose job it is to monitor um, those agreements, those legally binding agreements that we have both with growers and with the corporations. Este librito que traigo yo que es eh, eh, los derechos que está bajo este libro. Estos derechos no fue creado por alguien, fue creado por nosotros mismos los trabajadores, porque somos los expertos en el problema que estamos enfrentando, sabemos qué cosas queremos cambiar, entonces todo lo que está escrito en este librito son derechos, son cosas que nosotros sabemos que necesitamos cambiar. And this little booklet that I have, this rights booklet, this wasn't written by someone else. This was written by us as workers. Because we as workers know what the problems are that we face. We're the experts in our fields. And, and so the fair food farms have to implement the rights that are enclosed in this booklet that we wrote. Por primera vez en la industria agrícola tenemos como una voz como nosotros tra como trabajadores. Aquí el derecho de quejarte sin temor a represalias es uno de los derechos importantes que tenemos aquí, que era la cosa más grande que nosotros enfrentábamos por años, que no podíamos hablar, que no podíamos decir nada, éramos callados completamente. Ahora estas cosas han cambiado. And so right here we also have the right to complain without fear of retaliation, um, which was a huge problem that we had faced for so many years, but now eh, we, we have the right to speak up when there's an abuse and nobody can can fire us or do anything about it except listen to us and try to work towards a resolution. Uh, the voice of the workers are now being heard. Se está garantizando que no haya cero tolerancia de que haya cero tolerancia de esclavitud en el trabajo, que haya cero tolerancia de acoso sexual, que haya salud y seguridad en el trabajo eh, y muchos derechos más importantes que hay dentro de eso. Hay sombra para los trabajadores, hay todas esas cosas que hemos cambiado nosotros. And so today, there's zero tolerance for slavery um, in the fields. There's zero tolerance for sexual harassment. There's health and safety provisions. Um, and there's even a provision for shade, which is something that maybe you all wouldn't have thought about, but we know about because we're the ones who work in the fields. Y una de las cosas importantes en esto es que de las cuatro partes que hay, por ejemplo, si una corporación está comprando tomate donde bajo el programa no se está respetando los derechos de los trabajadores, hay consecuencias de esos rancheros. And so today, if one of the 13 corporations is buying from a grower who decides that they don't want to comply with these rights, um, there's a consequence for them. Tienen que garantizar que donde ellos compren su tomate, los trabajadores sean respetados bajo el programa por comida justa, que se respeten los derechos de los trabajadores y si no, entonces la compañía, el comprador tiene que com cortar el contrato con la compañía para buscar lugares donde sí se respetan los derechos de los trabajadores. Because today, if, if there's not a guarantee of rights for workers um, on those farms, then the buyers can't buy from those farms that aren't respecting workers' rights. Así es que es, una, es un programa más que nada que está trans, eh, transformando la vida de los trabajadores en la industria agrícola. Por primera vez nosotros como trabajadores tenemos esa voz y queremos que este camino que nosotros hemos abierto también se haga en, en las demás industrias porque eh, hay mucha industria en todo el país, pero lamentablemente se ignora la voz del trabajador, eh, muchas veces se crean cosas encima de los trabajadores 
que se va a hacer esto, pero creo que la cosa más importante es que el trabajador tenga una voz para poder hablar de sus problemas y eso es lo que hemos logrado nosotros y gracias por su atención. And so we've really seen a great transformation in the agricultural industry, in the, in the tomato industry in Florida in particular, um, where workers' voices are finally being respected and listened to. And we hope that this has opened up a path for other workers in other industries because that we know that there are workers in industries out there all across the country whose voices aren't yet being heard. And we know that that's important to them to having their rights respected. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Cruz. Thank you, Julia. That's a great story, and I, I wish there were and hope there will be a lot more of uh, such stories. I recently did a story about car wash workers in Southern California uh, who also prioritize, like the farm workers, the issue of shade, uh, and uh, many of whom used to work entirely for tips, no wage at all. Uh, so whole pockets of uh, the American economy are in this sort of submerged state, uh, which we may not be aware of, uh, and their numbers continue to grow. Uh, I want to begin asking a question here of David Rolfe. I met David when I was editing the LA Weekly in the 1990s, and David was the lead organizer for some crazy campaign to organize home care workers in Los Angeles <laughs> County. Uh, the crazy campaign resulted in the largest single act of unionization I think since Ford unionized in 1941, unionizing 74,000 home care workers. David then went on to the Pacific Northwest and more than doubled the membership of his union, SEIU, uh, in Washington State. So in some ways, David has organized into unions probably more workers than anyone else in the past 15 years. And yet, the reason he is here, David <laughs> thinks this is something of a dead end and that uh, alternatives need to be uh, created because he doesn't really think that's a sustainable path, much as he would like it to be. So explain yourself, David. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start with the big picture. You know, this is a nation that was, our nation, was hardly born into perfection. Uh, but we had these five words, liberty and justice for all, written into our founding documents. And for 200 years, we, always through struggle, passed along more liberty and more justice to every succeeding generation from the one behind them, until somewhere in the 1970s when we threw the whole thing into reverse. And you can blame, I don't know, the Lewis Powell memo, the doctrine of shareholder value maximization, Ronald Reagan, or pick your favorite bugbear in this whole drama. But what we began to do in the 1970s was uh, a set, we made a set of policy choices, economic choices, that sort of went like this. Imagine Jerry, Ford or Jimmy Carter running for election 40 years ago and saying, my fellow Americans, as much as it, you may not believe it right now, we're going to get through the bad times we're in. There are not going to be any more gas lines, no more stagflation. We're actually going to see the end of the Cold War. The Berlin Wall is going to come down. And there's going to be no more foreign military threats to US soil. And that would have been pretty hard to believe. But then if he had gone on to say, and in our nation, we're going to create more wealth in the next 30 years than all of, than has ever been created in all of human history. We're going to distribute 95% of it to the top 1% of income earners, 5% of it to the top 10%, none to the bottom 90%. We're going to ask the bottom 50% to take a wage cut. We're going to get rid of private sector retirement security, transfer health care costs onto consumers, 
uh, quadruple the cost of higher education, shred the funding for urban and rural public schools, export manufacturing, import third world wages, privatize, detach, deregulate, <laughs> get rid of all the unions, and uh, the net economic impact of women doubling their workforce participation between 1977 and 2012 will be $0 in take-home pay for the bottom 90% of incorporating households, no one would have voted for that person. <laughs> uh, but all of those things, in fact, the good and the bad in that speech, that hypothetical speech, did in fact occur. And the, the story of the long, slow, and sad decline of America's, the unions that we have now, the, the, sort of the Wagner Act industrial union model, uh, and the collective bargaining, the specific collective bargaining laws that animated it that, beginning in 1935, is now, uh, I'll put it this way, we have a fr I have a friend who's an airline pilot, and he tells me that there is some physical, some physics calculation where if a plane is in an unplanned descent, there is a certain point where there's not enough fuel, where no aircraft could even carry enough fuel, uh, sort of the, for the force of gravity and the velocity and the trajectory have all conspired that that plane is somehow going to crash. And there's not enough fuel that you could ever write the, trajectory of the aircraft again. And so at that point, you begin to plan for how to minimize loss of life. Um, the, the trajectory the legacy model American labor movement is on has now passed sort of its own strategic inflection point where rescue is no longer an option. And we have to begin to plan for what's next. Uh, we could all learn to be agnostic about the death of that particular model if there was a single rich democracy in the world that had ever built and sustained a middle class without a strong labor movement, but that is a set of zero. Mm -hmm. So to our generation of leaders, whether we like it or not, we can be sentimental about it uh, or not, but the real task is not to look backwards as we stare forward through this valley of death, but to think about what's on the other side and to take it as our charge to invent and, give, and gift the, the next labor movement to the next generation of American workers. Okay, and we'll get back to you later to <laughs> having laid out having laid out that cheery diagnosis. We'll get back to you later and uh, think what what you're thinking of Ruth. How much of the, uh, Ruth Milkman, an, another old friend from Los Angeles, where she ran the UCLA uh, Labor Center and now uh, is at the City University of New York, doing much the same. Uh, and you've written a great deal about labor, not only nationally but in those two cities and sort of the new working class, the new proletariat that we see in, 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 in cities. Uh, how, how much, uh, you know, have unions actually been able to, to, to do with those workers? What new forms of, uh, of organization have, have begun to arise among what we might call the, the new American proletariat? 42% uh, uh, of all American workers, the National Employment Law Project recently calculated make less than $15 an hour. That's a lot of workers. Um, uh, how, how, how are we beginning to address that? And how have we failed to address that uh, so far? Well, let me start by building sure. on what David said in terms of the failure part. Um, and I just want to first like, debunk a couple of widespread misconceptions that are out there. One of those is that this is all about a, a story of globalization. Um, globalization obviously has taken place in the period David was talking about. But actually, unions that are completely insulated from global competition have also declined. So think of construction unions, for example, which have declined just as much as those in manufacturing or in industries like hotels. So you know, that doesn't really explain very much, the, glo the globalization thing. Same with technology, which as many people see as a kind of bugabear. Yes, there's been a lot of technological change. 
Um, but even in industries that don't have much of that, we've seen um, traditional unionism fall apart. It's a story of power. And um, the, the power of employers has become um, much, much greater than that of um, that endangered species that Harold referred to earlier. Um, labor law designed in the New Deal era to be to level the playing field between workers and management has become a tool wielded almost exclusively by management. And that's really what's happened, along with deregulation and other legal changes that have taken place since. So even strikes, which rarely occur today, when they do, are often management-initiated events, where management will make an offer to a legacy union that they know the union can't accept to force them into strike. And if they won't go on strike, they'll lock them out, as we saw in the Southern California supermarket strike some years back that some of you may remember, involving 75,000 workers. Their union still exists, but by the end of that struggle, their, the, minimum, the, the entry wage was a nickel above the minimum wage at the time. That, that was a union-busting um, strike. Um, and then on top of that, employers have turned to new business strategies um, to shift more and more um, of the burden of risk to workers themselves rather than to bearing it as they had in the past as employers. Um, so all of those things have led many of us to think that the old model of collective bargaining is really broken in a way that requires radically new approaches. And we've seen the rise of what some people call alt-labor. Also, sometimes um, people refer to the new groups that have emerged as worker centers. You may have heard these words. The coalition that you heard about in Florida is one of them. Um, one thing that no one's mentioned quite yet that I think is really critical to that story is that many of these groups focus on immigrant workers. And to the surprise of many observers, including myself, I mean, this is a surprise from a long time ago, um, in the 1980s, we began to see that immigrant workers, actually far from being unorganizable, as many people assumed, because especially if they were undocumented, they might be very fearful of taking the risks involved in organizing, which are substantial. Actually, immigrants have turned out to be um, the most organizable of the new low-wage workforce for reasons maybe we can talk about later. Um, and so many of the alt-labor groups, in fact, represent foreign-born workers who have really stepped up um, to, you know, to organize in innovative ways. Um, so that's really one of the few bright spots on the horizon in terms of, uh, or well, not on the horizon, but on the landscape in terms of um, labor organizing. But these new forms of organizing do have their limitations. The groups that lead them tend to be quite small, have very limited resources, um, and that makes it difficult to do anything on a large scale, which is, of course, what's needed to address the, the problem. Um, so often they end up being advocates more than organizers, and they have been extremely successful in shining a bright light on abuses in the low-wage labor force. That's their biggest single achievement. But in terms of building lasting organizations of the kind that traditional labor unions represent, that's been much, much more difficult. Um, let me just say one more thing. I know I'm going on too long. What we're beginning to see now, which I think is the most hopeful thing that's happening, is partnerships more and more between traditional unions, which even in their decimated state, still do have deep pockets in many cases. Um, and they're beginning to use those to promote the alt-labor strategic repertoire. Probably the single best example is led by David's union, that is the the fast food campaign, the Fight for 15 that you've all heard about, I'm sure, that had those actions on um, April 15th just last week. Um, that campaign, although led by a traditional union, the SEIU, takes a page from the mm -hmm. alt-labor playbook 
in terms of the tactics and strategies that it's using. And it's been, because it has lots of resources and has started in New York, but then became a national campaign, it's been extremely successful along those lines. I mean, we'll see where it leads, whether it really leads to unionization, which is one of the demands. I don't know. But it's certainly um, raised public awareness and gotten a lot of people into the streets over these issues and changed the conversation. So I think it's a really great achievement. I'll stop there. I could go on forever, but <laughs> I know I can't. <laughs> We'll get back to you, don't worry. Uh, Sarita, uh, Jobs with Justice has been around for a while and is an organization that has been both a, a strategist and a community organizer alongside traditional unions and in conjunction also though with worker centers and immigrant groups and uh, uh, in an advocacy and movement building role. So riff off what uh, Ruth just said and, and, and yeah. Uh, the, the, these varieties of organizations and your experiences with them and what you conclude from that. Yeah, um, I really appreciate a lot of what Ruth said and uh, just picking up on the partnership piece. I mean, a lot of the role that Jobs of Justice has been playing has in some ways been, we're sort of been connective tissue, if you will, like helping to connect some of the really core issues um, and strategies that we see happening um, in traditional unions with uh, alt-labor as uh, the term that's being used, or worker centers, which is more of what I talk about. Um, and, and fundamentally, like just taking a step back in the big picture here, these partnerships matter because the truth is today, we have to actually expand the way we think about collective bargaining. I mean, no longer can we think about collective bargaining as something that a group of workers do with their direct employer over wages and traditional benefit structures. It's just, it doesn't match the reality of most workers today who are working part-time, temporary, or they're subcontracted workers, right? Like close to, and this is debated, but like close to a third of our workforce yeah, is right. working contingent. Um, so those traditional models on which unions have been built and collective bargaining agreements have been built no longer hold true for a, a majority, a growing majority um, of workers. So fundamentally, the, what we need to be doing is really redefining um, who we bargain with and what we're bargaining over. And part of what's exciting about the partnerships that we see emerging is exactly that. So if you look at Walmart, the campaign to support uh, retail workers at Walmart, um, it's not just a campaign about retail workers at Walmart, you see, because a number of us have been redefining and pushing the boundaries and saying, well, who really is a Walmart worker? It's retail workers, but it's also the warehouse workers who put the products on the shelves. It's also the garment workers in Asia who provide the, you know, supply the garments. It's also the seafood workers in the Gulf Coast who are providing products. So how do we actually name who the real boss is in the Walmart, uh, in the scenario of Walmart? And th this gets to bargaining, like who are we bargaining with? Often what we find is workers are stuck in the shell game, right, of who is the real boss and what can they bargain over. So we're just seeing lots of interesting models, whether it's Walmart, fast food that was talked about, even in the care sector. Um, and certainly uh, policy innovations that are being developed out of that to, to really address a wide range of issues like scheduling. Um, some of these issues that have emerged through these campaigns of fast food workers and Walmart workers bringing unions 
and um, workers' centers together to push through things like the Retail Workers' Bill of Rights in San Francisco to raise standards and to actually name and, and, and address the issue of enough hours of work in addition to how we raise wages. So I think there's, as we get into discussion, I'm happy to share more examples, but there's right. a lot of them. Right, and I, I think maybe the pioneering campaign of identifying who the real boss is yeah. was probably Justice for Janitors, uh, another SAIU campaign led by Stephen Lerner, which more or less realized that if you were going to unionize the janitors in downtown office buildings, you really needed to go after the owners of those buildings, often real estate investment trusts, uh, and That's led right. to perhaps the last major successful private sector uh, unionization campaign in American history in the 1990s. Yeah. So, that was, I think, laying the, uh, the groundwork for this. A very specific example, of course, is uh, of, of an alt-labor success is the one that Cruz talked about. Mm -hmm. And to get more on the mechanics uh, of that, I, I would like to uh, hear from uh, Laura, who administers this, this structure that you know, began with, uh, in, in some ways, sort of like the old California grape boycott of the 1960s, pressure on retailers, and it redounding back finally to the advantage of the farm workers themselves. So if you could talk a little bit about, about that and, and, and what you do and what this organization uh, does, that would be a, a really helpful concrete example. Sure. Well, I think perhaps the most important thing that I can say about the Fair Food Program is that it is worker social responsibility in action. And so taking a lot of the kernels of what the former speakers have said, I would ask the audience, although we're sitting in DC, to sort of transport yourself just for a moment to the edge of the Everglades in Florida, to an area where federal prosecutors called ground zero for modern day slavery a few years ago, and to, to picture what an unlikely place this was for things to take hold the way Cruz described them. Have people here seen Harvest of Shame? Mm -hmm. um, then you did see footage of Immokalee. And really, very little had changed uh, from the time of that documentary to the time that Cruz described that the coalition began their organizing uh, in, in the 1990s, except that African Americans, for the large part, had been able to escape the fields uh, and with the gains of the Civil Rights Movement. And what you had were immigrant workforce uh, that came from Haiti, from Guatemala, from Mexico, people who brought some of their experiences in the peasant movements uh, in their countries, some of that framing, some of that organizing and, and popular education methods, and started looking at how to do this in a different way. Um, and you know, I'm not going to go back over the ground that Cruz described, and to, but to fast forward to say that what they were able to do, the success that they had, only came when they looked beyond the farmhouse gate, beyond the grower, and recognized that the power of the large corporate buyers was driving prices down and therefore exerting prices on the, uh, pressure on the growers. And the growers economized on the one vulnerable cost that they had, which was their labor force. And by using what you point out, uh, the power of consumers, uh, they were able to reverse that trend and to, to uh, achieve these legally binding agreements with growers and buyers. And it is, it is a, I'm the insider-outsider, so I can say I think it is a brilliant structure to have the buyers pay a penny more a pound and to 
stand behind a fair food code of conduct, not stand behind it aspirationally, but stand behind it with legally binding agreements and cut off their purchasing power uh, when those standards are not lived up to. And the growers are forced uh, to implement that code of conduct and to pass along that wage supplement. So what would you expect from a worker social responsibility model once the victory has been won? You would expect a code of conduct that's not generic, but that was written by workers itself. And we can talk about the provisions, but I know some of my colleagues here have, have, have pointed out the issue of labor, of labor subcontracting and contracting. This, the code, because workers knew the importance of that, the code makes the grower the direct employer. No more labor contractor, no more confusion. The, the employer must, uh, the grower must put workers on their payroll, be responsible for them, for their wages and their well-being while they are on the property. So there is no confusion whatsoever there. Um, you have, uh, the code covers everything from the complaint mechanism right down through work environment, health and safety, and wages. Uh, then you have worker education on those rights that is as deep and broad as possible. Every worker, before they set foot in the, in the fields, gets educated uh, on their rights. They know where to call. They know they can call the Fair Food Standards Council if they have a complaint. And all of that happens on the clock on grower property. Um, I don't know if you, I can talk about our monitoring model. Um, you tell me when I'm out of time. Well, why, don't, why don't we do that in the, in the mm -hmm. second go-round? Okay. Okay. So, so I just will then, in closing, just say that there is an intensive, intensive modeling, uh, monitoring process uh, between the worker monitors and the Fair Food Standards Council, and all of that is supported by prompt and serious market consequences. Mm -hmm. And those are the elements of the model. All right. Um, okay, David, you left us in a crashing plane. Uh, <laughs> uh, the American worker was, uh, was, was, was downward bound rather yeah. quickly. Yeah. Um, so two things. You uh, are the uh, primary architect of uh, the first successful $15 minimum wage campaign, which uh, more or less emerged circuitously out of what began as a conventional union thing yeah. and quickly morphed into something else. Uh, talk about that and then talk about your larger conclusion and what led you to set up the Worker Lab and what is the Worker Lab? Sure. So two parts. Yep. So I mean to talk about CTAC and the CTAC and the Seattle minimum wage campaigns, the two were actually uh, organized and run and funded really by the same set of leaders in the, uh, Seattle. Um, they were very different campaigns. The CTAC campaign was actually, you know, those workers aspired to have a traditional union and because they were all employees of subcontractors of the major airlines. This is at the Seattle airport. This is at the Seattle airport, right? The city yeah. called CTAC. It's sort of like if Astoria, Queens was its own city. <coughs> and so if you flew into LaGuardia, you were flying into the city of Astoria. CTAC mm -hmm. is this little city uh, 27,000 residents, six residential neighborhoods, and a giant uh, international airport. Um, and, you know, it, our, w the congressman from that area, a guy named Adam Smith, actually, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it grew up in SeaTac as the son of a baggage handler for United Airlines. And his dad made what in today's dollars would be about $60,000 a year, had a health plan and a pension, owned a home, and was able to send his kid to college and law school. Um, Today, that worker, uh, handling baggage for United or Alaska or any of the major carriers, uh, makes the minimum wage and uh, has no benefits, no pension, no paid time off, probably works two or three jobs. Last week, one of them actually fell asleep uh, in the uh, cargo hold of an airplane. This happens more than you 
more than gets reported because most people, in fact, do commute long distances and work multiple jobs. Um, so workers at SeaTac Airport wanted to form a union, but the actual, uh, not unlike Justice for Janitors and Mockley, Walmart, and every other example we've heard, the real economic powerhouse was not the you've never heard of them no-name subcontractor, right. but actually Alaska Airlines, which leases 55% of the gates at SeaTac. It's their hub. Uh, it's their hometown airline. And when you know, workers couldn't get Alaska to essentially tell the subcontractors to uh, recognize their union, especially uh, there's a you know, complicated legal recognition process under the Railway Labor Act that makes it virtually impossible for sort of behind the security checkpoint uh, uh, workers to form a union in the United States. They decided to write a union contract into city law. And so not only $15 minimum wages, which would go into effect seven weeks after the law passed, but paid sick leave, a guarantee of full-time work, prohibitions on stealing tips, a whole lot of these things, uh, written into one living wage ordinance that applied to large transportation hospitality uh, sector employers. They, those short, they wrote, the, we wrote it, the thing, qualified it for the ballot. Uh, the airline sued to keep it off the ballot. They lost. We won by 77 votes. And, uh, off of airport property, it's in effect. People are making $15. No one has been laid off. All the businesses that predicted gloom and doom are still operating. Uh, on airport property, it's the law is suspended as it's been challenged uh, up to the state Supreme Court. We're waiting on it. The decision could happen any Thursday on whether it will be allowed to go into effect on airport property. And then meanwhile, in the same market, Seattle had some of the earliest and most successful fast food strikes, which by design, we sort of, um, you know, held, I mean, not quite by design because they just were happening, but the, you know, they happened to occur in the same space and time as a municipal election, which then very much became a referendum on $15 in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Because we had, you know, what became a global media phenomenon of the SeaTac campaign. I mean, it was not, we didn't expect the British Broadcasting Service to show up uh, to cover the election night party, but there they were, you know, my aunt in rural northern New Hampshire calling up my mom and saying, I saw David on the television. It, it, you know, we didn't actually, we were just trying to get workers to union in SeaTac, but then uh, at the same space and time, we were leading the fast food strikes, and that really caught the popular imagination. Mm -hmm. Seattle is a prosperous city, is an expensive city, and, uh, you know, the reality is that most minimum wage workers are not teenagers. Mostly they are, 77% are adults, 22% are moms, 25% are over the age of 40. And, the pu and public opinion moved incredibly quickly in Seattle to support the concept of $15 minimum wage. The two mayoral candidates ended up in a bidding war at each other, 15, 17, 18, 19. <laughs> and um, after the election, the, Ed Murray, our mayor, our new mayor, put together a task force basically to bargain the contours and policy parameters of how to get to 15. I chaired the labor side, the guy who owns the Sheraton Hotel, the Space Needle, and a bunch of other uh, hospitality and tourism properties chaired the business side. And we literally collectively bargained, lowercase c, lowercase <laughs> b, yeah. uh, the, the $15 wage policy with the heads of the Chamber of Commerce, the Restaurant Association, and the hotel association on one side of the table, the heads of the large union and community organizations on the other. So that's sort of the Seattle yeah, story. Yeah, let's let's hold the workers. Uh, yeah, uh, great. Workers lab until uh, until the next question. Sure. So so, so Ruth, uh, a lot of what we're discussing here is what uh, uh, the uh, uh, labor economist David Weil, who now works at the uh, Department of Labor, in charge of wages and hours. 
calls the fissured workplace, mm -hmm. fissured, split, divided in many ways so that there are multiple layers between the worker and the real employer, uh, as, as various uh, panelists have, uh, uh, have, have made clear. And that obviously poses real challenges uh, for workers, uh, as does the uh, inefficacy in of the uh, National Labor Relations Act. And so we do have these new institutions, these worker centers, which do a version of what's been described here. Worker advocacy, but that probably isn't going to uh, uh, end in a, uh, uh, in a conventional union contract, but, but something mm -hmm. like what Laura described or what David has described mm -hmm. through, you know, through legislative means, uh, through consumer pressure. Mm -hmm. What's your assessment of this? How, how, how far can it go? Uh, uh, and uh, what, are the, what are the limits on, uh, uh, on these alt-labor uh, uh, campaigns? Right. Well, by themselves, they, they have certain inherent limitations. One is they don't have a source of revenue, right? These organizations mostly depend on foundation grants to survive. A few of them do have a due structure, but these are extremely low-wage workers who cannot afford to pay substantial dues. So, so there's, that's one problem. There isn't really a business model for most of these groups that allows them to sustain themselves. And they spend a lot of time raising money instead of organizing because that's obviously a requirement to stay in business. I, just a side point, many of these groups are headed by young women. It's not, and I see a lot of young women in the audience here. It's not an accident. In contrast, look at the staffers of most major unions. <laughs> and women of color. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just want to add, and it's and a lot of women of color in particular. A lot of women of color in particular. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they, they don't get paid a whole lot. This is a labor of love. So, anyway, th that's one problem is the business model. Another is scale, which we've already talked about a little bit. It's very, with limited resources. Yeah. Let me just put it this way. When these groups began to appear in, in large numbers in the 1990s, the traditional labor unions looked at them with great skepticism. It was like, who are these kids? They don't have any money. They don't know anything. What are they doing here? You know, what is this? this they just thought it was a joke, really. That was the view. And similarly, the worker center leaders, all, what now call all labor, kind of looked at the unions themselves as dinosaurs. Like, you know, they're not doing anything about the fissured workplace, about low-wage workers who, you know, who can't really do traditional collective bargaining, even if somehow you could overcome the employer resistance. Um, you know, they're irrelevant. We're where the action is. Well, over the years, there's come to be a sort of process of mutual appreciation of the strengths and weaknesses of each model. And kind of beginnings, of, I don't know, a courtship. I was going to say a marriage, but it's not really a marriage. It's more like a courtship of, you know, exploring partnerships of various kinds. The fast food one we've already mentioned. Um, there are others. The uh, Taxi Workers um, Association, which started in New York and is now a national entity. Um, Taxi workers in New York, taxi drivers, are independent contractors, meaning 1099 employees, so to speak. They're not considered employees, therefore have no rights under the Labor Relations Act, such as it is. So they can't organize in conventional unions. But that group has been extremely successful. It's also headed by a, a woman of color, actually, <laughs> South decide. Asian. Um, yeah, she's an amazing woman, even though all the drivers pretty much are men. Not quite all, but the vast majority. Um, they've actually had a couple of strikes. They've been extremely successful. Well, they're now, they've been given a charter by the AFL-CIO, mm -hmm. so that's another example of this kind of partnership. But what kind of things and have their strikes won? They have won some things. They've right. won, um, they won, uh, well, so that what, they're, what they were able to do is insert themselves, since it's a highly regulated industry, into the negotiations between the Taxi and Limousine Commission in New York City and the, the fleet owners. 
And so, and whenever the tax, the TLC can raise the taxicab fares, and what they were able to do is to say, okay, some percentage of that increase in fare is going to go directly to the workers, and most recently, some percentage of it has gone to set up a health care fund for the taxi mm -hmm. workers, and this was before Obamacare, so now it's maybe less essential, but, so they've been really quite successful in driving a new model forward. Anyway, that's another example, and um, I don't know, I guess I think that is the most hopeful thing that's happening. And the fast food is another example of these partnerships between the two. And it's a marriage or a courtship or whatever of, you know, resources on the one side and imagination on the other. I hate to say it, but that's really what it's like. So I've meant, there are exceptions, but in general the unions don't have a lot of new ideas. This is where the new ideas are coming from. And so in the absence of resources, insofar as the two come together, I don't know, you know, you sort of feel like be fruitful and multiply is the is the solution to the challenges ahead of us. So a courtship between old guys and young women. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Where have you seen this movie before? We're not, not going to go there. Uh, Let's not go there. <laughs> Sarita, uh, you guys have been particularly active uh, with some of these uh, yeah. some of these groups, domestic workers uh, mm -hmm. in, in particular. Just a mm -hmm. brief, just talk about a little bit about sort of both what you've done and what you derive from this as to the, the potential and limitations. Uh, and yeah. I know you've been active with them in some legislative battles mm -hmm. and other battles. So mm -hmm. talk about that for a couple minutes. Yeah, I mean, domestic workers are a great example. I mean, we've been focused on the care sector and working with the National Domestic Workers Alliance across the country, winning at the state level these domestic worker bill of rights. Because again, going back to Harold's uh, <laughs> opening, you know, these are a set of workers that, that are not protected under existing federal labor laws. So um, across the country, starting in New York City, to California, to Massachusetts, there have been these successful bill of rights campaigns that have helped raise standards, uh, literally, um, uh, it, it especially uh, giving people like paid, you know, days off, like holidays, because a lot of these workers were often expected to work every day, all day, uh, without um, uh, any, any day of rest, for example, are some of the kinds of standards that they've been able to raise, in addition, in some cases, in some states, to raising wages and some of the overtime protections that are, are necessary. But more importantly, when we think about transformative strategies, because I think that's fundamentally what we need to, what we're getting at, is that there's, there are, a, there's a set of issues that are playing out and, and engaging and, and really impacting so many people in our country. If you look at care and the issue of care itself, with the incredible demographic shifts in our country, we're a rapidly aging nation, every eight seconds someone turns 65, you know, the implications that people are living much longer lives, the implications of that are that more and more people are going to need some form of direct care support at some point in their life. And so, yet we don't have a home care workforce, and many of whom are domestic workers, to actually meet that need. So we've crafted with Domestic Workers Alliance a campaign called Caring Across Generations, which really takes a step back and says, how do we bring workers and consumers of care together to really think and imagine how we transform the long-term care system in our country. And embedded within that is a real uh, policy vision around the creation of new care jobs, the, how do we raise the standards, the quality of those jobs. That includes everything from training, some of which, I mean, David has been an immense, has created an immense model of training in the home care sector. How do we 
expand that? Um, how do we create career ladders to how do we really uh, uh, take on the issue of immigrant workers? Like how do we create a pathway to citizenship for an existing home care workforce and really address affordability and accessibility of care? That is one of many kinds of examples where we're able to bring these partnerships and have them be transformed and put bargaining, the issue of collective bargaining and embed it within the larger social issues of our time, which is really what I think we need to keep pursuing. And Laura, mm -hmm. you, you, you deal with the, uh, the, the nuts and bolts of this every day. Uh, yes, so uh, talk a little bit more about that and how it, how it works where, uh, with the uh, Florida uh, tomato workers. Sure. And, and, don't, and don't let me stop without addressing sustainability. Too. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, Very important. So uh, the elements that we were talking about earlier, which were just what you would expect to see in worker social responsibility, uh, a, a program that workers actually designed for themselves would also encompass the kind of monitoring that the Fair Food Standards Council is entrusted to do. And what we basically were set up to do, we're the only organization that we know of, of its kind, in U certainly in U.S. <coughs> agriculture and possibly in the world from our, from our research, is to be completely dedicated to monitoring and enforcing this particular program. So we do that in a number of ways. We work together with the Worker Education Committee uh, very closely to monitor conditions on fair food program farms, both through audits that are conducted, and I know when you say audits, everybody's eyes glaze over, uh, but these are audits that are done by the same investigators go out to fair food program farms and they also handle a 24-7 complaint line. Wow. So between that continuous feed of education, between that and what we receive from the education committee, our investigators picking up a call from a worker who says, I don't know what farm I'm on, I don't know exactly the name of, of, of the company, but I'm at such and such a cross street and the, the contractor's name, you know, nickname is such and such, is about as opposite as you can get from a cold call center, uh, which is, is, is the, the, the gold standard uh, for a lot of corporate social responsibility programs. Our monitors go out and interview more than half the workforce at any given location, something that you would also expect uh, from a program generated by workers who want you to actually uncover the abuses. They generate reports for the growers and corrective action plans. And behind both our uh, dispute resolution in the, the complaints, because I should say there are no, you know, th this is not something where a worker uh, gets a summons, you know, and says you are called to testify in such and such week, such and such a month when they have moved on with the migrant stream. Our resolution process happens within days, normally no more than weeks, and so right. to be effective, sustainability. Yeah. How do you how do you fund this? How do you keep Kay. going? So. Built it, the business plan for the, yeah. sorry, the business yeah. plan for the fair food program is that in every uh, new agreement from participating buyers that are now coming voluntarily, by the way, with no campaign whatsoever uh, to the program, as are employers uh, of conscience, people who want to see transparency in their supply chain, they will be paying for monitors as as for this monitoring uh, work as time goes on. 
up to, up to now, there has been a substantial emphasis on foundation, as, as you had pointed out, but that is the model going forward, and that is the future, and we will be in five states this summer and a new crop by the fall. So it is beyond the $650 million tomato industry with its tens of thousands of workers. It is definitely growing and moving towards sustainability. Terrific. Last question from me and quick answer from David. David, uh, in response to all this, you, uh, you, your local and your international has uh, uh, agreed to fund an, uh, something you've set up called the Workers Lab. What is it? How does it address all this? It's an accelerator. So here's our analysis. Uh, it's that the old model is fading away. It's not, you cannot resurrect it. Uh, we can't, it's, you know, restoring the 1935 era Wagner regime is a now lost cause. Mm -hmm. um, but without replacing it, we doom future generations of American workers to life lifetimes of poverty and economic insecurity, just as our competitor nations are figuring out how to build and sustain middle classes for the first time. So because unlike John L. Lewis in 1935, or for that matter, Steve Jobs, Louis Gershner, or Andy Grove, we don't have a well-developed plan B to which to transfer all of our assets and resources. So the purpose of the Workers Lab is really to do rapid cycle prototyping and do seed stage capital investment in new enterprises, for-profit and not-for-profit, that attempt to replicate the three essential elements of the 20th, 20th century labor movement's DNA. The power to change workers' lives, economically, the scale to touch millions of people, mm -hmm. and, a and a sustainability model, revenue model, that allows the enterprises to survive even during bad economies or even during periods of political disfavor. Once you, if you, we can be sentimental about the silkscreen jackets with the funny logos, about union conventions and bylaw and the revenue model to pay for it, that's what the Workers Lab is going to attempt to run experiments to replicate in the 21st century economy. Okay, now we're going to turn to you all. Uh, there will be some people with microphones going around to take questions. Given the limited time, what I'd like to do is take a number of questions and then hear from the panelists. You can direct yeah. questions to a particular panelists, to all the panelists, to Cruz, uh, but uh, questions are in order. Yes, let's, let's go back uh, in the right there, yes. Thank and you. And please state who you are. Sure, my name is Agatha Tan, I'm from Polaris. I would love, thank you all, this has been a fabulous panel. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on this uh, concept of, of the sharing economy, sort of the Ubers yep. and the yep. Airbnbs of the world. Is this just sort of the next nail in the coffin of the fissuring workplace? Or is this a way that we could potentially try to harness consumers um, to steer them back towards trying to support work organizing? Mm -hmm. um, you probably can already guess by the way I asked the question what I think about the shared economy <laughs> concept, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Right, and, and I, I commend you for not actually making a statement, uh, even though it, it, it hovered over that. This, this <laughs> questions, are, <laughs> questions are good. And we have uh, a hand, uh, uh, this gentleman up here. Uh, I'm Bruce Goldstein with Farm Worker Justice here in Washington, D.C. Now, I just wondered what you all think about how important it is to win immigration form, reform with a path to immigration status and citizenship in order to achieve these goals because what we find is that so many farm workers are undocumented, it really does interfere with their willingness to stand up and challenge unfair and illegal job uh, conditions and, and join organizations. Okay, let's take one more question before we go to some answers. Uh, lady uh, here. Thanks. Uh, Ann Yeoman, I'm actually a consultant with um, the Administration for Children and Families. Um, 
my question is, where, what is the place of worker cooperatives or worker-owned businesses? I've, been, I've run across a couple of examples, particularly in the healthcare area, where employers have tried to kind of move in that direction and not necessarily gotten very much uptake from uh, the potential participants. There seems to be, I don't know if education, communication, whatever. So I don't know if this fits into the alt-labor um, pattern or if it's a growing or not growing movement. Okay, let's, uh, let's take some answers. Anyone want to deal with the sharing economy first? Mm -hmm. uh, da David? Okay. So, you know, right now through contingent work of various sorts, including, including sort of, pla you know, platform, distribution platform work like Elance, Odesk, TaskRabbit, Lyft, Uber, Airbnb, Etsy, Amazon Turk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's new ones every day. Um, you, you know, there are now 50 million Americans who have no legal right to form a union because they are 1099 employees or subcontracted employees of some nature. And um, this is actually really potentially liberating because there's no incumbent industrial era labor law impeding innovation in the worker advocacy and worker rights space. And you know, I think you could potentially do some very, very creative stuff <coughs> here. Um, I, 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 in, you know, I think you could actually combine some of the first and third questions here. I don't know why we don't have worker-owned uh, work distribution platforms that come with them a set of, you know, a one-page contract and a set of standards that are essentially part of the terms of service for customer use. You know, I use these things all the time. And if, if it cost me six more dollars to, for the TaskRabbit to have a worker-owned plat, worker platform administer their health benefits <laughs> retirement plan, uh, workers' comp insurance and everything else and I, that I paid when I go online and order up some service, you know, I think that would, that would not be particularly disruptive on the consumer side. It would be potentially incredibly impactful on the worker side. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, let, let's stick with worker co-ops for a minute. Anyone else have any, uh, any worker co-op? Uh? Well, I, I mean, I'll just add that I do actually think there are um, more groups in sort of the alt-labor world who are beginning to explore and, and, and investigate this and create things. They're, they're experimenting. So whether it's the restaurant opportunity centers with their restaurants that are worker-owned, um, restaurants of colors in New York City and Detroit and a few other places, or it's um, domestic workers actually have created a whole fair care lab where they're like they are looking at these platforms and figuring out business models that make sense where the workers really generate revenue and, and can create sustainability um, and many others. So I do think this is actually a growing arena. We may not be hearing a lot about it at the moment because we are in a, an immense moment of experimentation. So there's lots of small scale things being tried, but I think there's an opportunity for that to grow. Okay, and let's talk about uh, the centrality of immigration reform yeah. to uh, all of this. And maybe Cruz yeah. or anyone else? Uh, I'm happy to say something, too. Oh, yeah. okay. Cruz wants so. to. Uh, yes I, or no? I'm Either way. Well, you, Serena, you want to start? Oh, you can sure, start. Okay. sure. I'll, I'm happy to start. I mean, I think immigration reform is critical. It's essential. We're very clear about that in all this work. Um, most of the campaigns we're working on or groups we're working on are all in key advocates of immigration reform. Um, I think we're disappointed that we haven't been able to cross the finish line, if you will, um, but it's an essential component of lots of campaigns that we see yeah. developing. Um, and, and, and just to say, in addition to pushing through immigration reform, there's a lot of work being done on retaliation. How do we protect immigrant workers who are in fact taking collective action? Um, 
Um, so lots of interesting work looking at uh, labor trafficking, sex trafficking, different visas being used. How do you create temporary status to help workers see through their initial activity engagement? Um, and then how do we go from there? But those are all supplemental to uh, the bigger fight for immigration reform. I mean, there is a, uh, uh, okay. I'd be happy to add something. Oh, Ruth, okay. Well, I, I agree that it's absolutely essential. Yeah. I, I also just think we should think of the immigrant rights movement itself as part of the new labor movement. Absolutely. Um, the reason um, fixing the broken immigration system is so important for immigrants is obvious, but really it's an issue of economic advancement for them. The single biggest, why do people right. come to this country? Low-wage immigrants come because they want a better life for themselves and their children. and lack of legal status is the biggest obstacle to that. Um, despite all the dangers of retaliation and the other perils of living an undocumented life, it's extraordinary how much courage we've seen among yes. undocumented immigrants um, in pushing forward a lot of these campaigns. Yeah. And as well as the Dreamers movement, which is the, you know, the young um, undocumented kids who were brought here as children and now are millennial generation age. Um, they, so it hasn't ha we haven't gotten to the finish line, but yeah. that we've gotten as close as we have is largely due to their work. So Can I think there's a lot to you know, take seriously as that. And, and, and some, I mean, I'm all for co-ops, but there's much more talk than action on the co-op front, whereas in, in the case of immigrant rights movement, there's a lot going on, and it's really, that's what the alt-labor is really um, knitted very closely with. So that's just a key piece of the story. Let, let's take a few more commendably brief questions. Uh, uh, on the <laughs> aisle, uh, now you, uh, you're, you're the one who you just turned around, but I, I meant you. <laughs> Hi there. Um, I'm Emma Cleveland from the Employment Justice Center. I think we're a worker center, but the lawyers think we're a legal aid organization. We, we <laughs> <want to. laughs> um, my question is, um, I'd like to hear about what some of the uh, innovative initiatives that were funded through the Workers Lab are and what they look like, because I'm very curious kind of what some of those uh, projects are forming up to be. Okay, uh, let's take another question. Um, uh, gentleman by the window. Hi, my name is Sam Lakin. Uh, back when I was a shop steward in the uh, 1970s, unions began to become into great disfavor uh, among the population. Uh, I haven't seen that changing much, but there has been an enormous change uh, in people's tolerance for low wages. Um, and so I'm curious about, as you talk about these partnerships, about two things. One is how do you take advantage and extend this sentiment, which has clearly grown out of great dissatisfaction for unfairness, and what role do you see social media playing in this process? Mm. Mm -hmm. Good questions. Um, okay, let's take one more. Uh, uh, where's the mic? Uh, Here. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> woman on the aisle uh, here, in blue, light blue, yes. Hi, my name's... Yes. Okay. Hi, I'm Sophie Quinton. I write for National Journal. And I think um, Ruth mentioned earlier that there's sort of a misconception that immigrant workers are very hard to organize, actually. They're mm. driving a lot of these movements. Could you speak more to that? Why might immigrants um, be more open to, to this kind of... Thank you, and let's start with Ruth answering that. Okay, great. Oh, it's a great question. I've actually written a lot about this, so I'm very well prepared <laughs> to answer it. Well, so there are these sort of myths out there about um, immigrant unorganizability, as it used to be called. These myths are dying, but they're still out there in the general population, if not in the labor world. Um, one is that, you know, people come here temporarily, they're planning to go back to their home country, and so why would they take the, you know, make, go to all the trouble of organizing? They're not going to be here to enjoy the fruits of it. 
right? Another, the biggest you know, idea is that um, people are terrified of apprehension by the authorities and, um, and just simply are not going to take the risks involved, which again are, are huge in sticking their necks out, so to speak, and um, organizing. And those things aren't completely wrong, but they kind of overlook like a whole other side to the immigrant story, which is, well, first of all, on the risk front, the risk of, especially if you're undocumented, coming here in the first place sort of uh, is a lot greater than the risk of you know, getting involved in a campaign. I still remember a, a janitor I interviewed in LA and the Justice for Janitors campaign who said, in my country, if you organize a union, they kill you. Here, you lose a job that, at that time, the minimum wage was, that pays four twenty-five an hour. You know, so that kind of sums it up. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's an issue. Okay, well, I have the floor. Can I just comment on, yeah. the, on the other yes. question about, um, yes. about social media, et cetera? Which is just to mention another piece of the story that I think we've not mentioned, none of us have mentioned yet, which is Occupy Wall Street. Mm -hmm. yes. That yeah. was a real turning point. Yeah. That changed the conversation. That's when the, the concern about inequality and low wages really took off. And, and it's something that the labor movement had tried to get on the national agenda forever, but had failed to do so. And then, again, these young people using social media and many other innovative um, techniques, okay, it didn't last very long, Occupy as, a, as Occupy, but it's completely transformed the national debate. And I think, you know, that just should be part of this conversation mm -hmm. as well. Okay, mm -hmm. anyone else on this? Yeah. Oh, Laura. I mean, I, th I think it's really clear uh, from what we have seen in the Fair Food Program that immigrants in, the, in a framework where, uh, where protection against retaliation is made primary and is backed by strong and powerful consequences and uh, immigrants have zero problem with coming forward and participating, in part perhaps because of what Ruth has said and in part because they bring their own organizing traditions uh, with them and their own experiences with them. And certainly it has not been a deterrent for people that it is with that uh, with those voices speaking up that there are now zero cases of forced labor and violence against worker and sexual assault on fair food program farms. So that has not been an issue. And regarding social media, the campaign for fair food has found an in incredible uses for social media uh, in arriving to uh, consumers and, and in especially obviously in the gen my children's generation, that's everything. Um, they are certainly responding to that tremendously. And then and the news gets out immediately. And beyond that, we get immediate feeds from the field now. It's pesticide clouds, workers being beaten on non-fair food program farms. Everybody has a cell phone. Everybody texts, you know. So that that yeah. that is a, the a very powerful uh, mm -hmm. tool. Great. They, um, Sarita. Yeah. You, yeah. Just a quick thing. I mean, on this, this, your question and your comment about people feeling so unfavorable about unions, I mean, I, I guess I just want to point out that like 89% of our population has no relationship to a union or collective bargaining rights. Right. That's actually what we're challenged with, is they have no idea. And so part of the work, um, and you're right, there's a growing intolerance of low wages, which is, it, which is totally and absolutely fueled by social media, because now different people's struggles are getting connected online. Hey, that's what we're experiencing. That's what we're yeah. experiencing. That's an opportunity, and I think that's why, frankly, the fight for 15, yeah. the work that worker centers are doing, the raising wages work of the AFL-CIO, this is all about us capturing that energy and frustration and channeling, channel, channeling it at this moment 
environment. And the key task at hand for us is how we help people understand why collective bargaining is actually, the, it, small c, small b, is an <laughs> essential part of how we address inequality in our country. Okay, David, you were asked about what the Workers Lab has actually, which projects you've actually sure. uh, yeah. uh, funded. And yeah, so, and, I'll, and I may touch on a couple of these other things sure. here. But So the first four portfolio investments of the Workers Lab are the Better Builders Program at the Workers Defense Project in Austin, which is very much like a Coalition for Mockley Workers style thing where they are sort of aspiring to be the lead style certification for worker ethical workplace standards in construction contracting, and they're trying to scale beyond. They've had some success in Austin. They're trying to scale statewide. Um, it's a very promising model that sort of combines worker-determined standards, enforcement, and a revenue model. Mm -hmm. Coworker.org is an online campaign platform uh, that succeeded in getting Starbucks to reverse its policies on visible tattoos and piercings and on workplace and on uh, clopening, if people know that, with a, mm -hmm. you know, on chaotic scheduling, um, and got 10% of Starbucks employees worldwide to sign on to petitions to the company uh, there. Uh, Work America is a for-profit, we're making an equity investment in a for-profit workforce development and job placement firm that's trying to apply, that essentially uh, navigate people through community college with a predetermined pre job at a pre-agreed-on wage. And um, Restaurant Opportunity Center is spinning off a for-profit video game uh, workforce training right. app that will be a revenue generator for their work, uh, their worker organizing. Um, all of them, I, I could tell you more, I probably shouldn't, uh, uh, <laughs> either time-wise or non-disclosure-wise, but uh, those are the first four portfolio investments. The, I'll just say a couple things about these other things. You know, um, I think that the social media stuff is incredibly important. In the fast food campaigns nationally, workers are meeting each other online before they're meeting each other in person. Um, and as long as we're stuck playing by the industrial economy rules of 1935 and trying to do workplace by workplace, shop by shop organizing, you'll never get to scale in a disaggregated 21st century workforce um, using social media. I mean, social media's done two things. I mean, if you remember Occupy, what actually accelerated it was the Tumblr blog, um, you know, I am the 99%. Right, because it broke down people's isolation and sense of powerlessness and this belief promulgated by a generation of propaganda that if you're poor, it's your fault. And that this is somehow you are in the minority and you should just be a better person. And instead we realized the majority of people uh, are, you know, the vast majority of people are struggling economically. Half of the jobs being, two thirds of the jobs being created are low wage jobs. 42% of all jobs are low wage jobs. And social media played a huge role in letting people name that problem and mm -hmm. talk about it with dignity and not with shame. And then um, finally on, um, you know, this question of union brand versus intolerance of unions, tolerance for low wages, you know, we're not gonna bring back those old clunky machines of the industrial economy. We're just not. Um, and, you know, we would be lying if we said unions didn't do much of what earned them uh, a bad brand image in the 1970s. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, uh, so the second I, I learned from a panel that Ruth and I were on the other day in New York, that the second oldest profession in the country is union staff. The first oldest is funeral director. Uh, and, and, but here's what we do know. And we know that uh, none of us chose to be born when we were born. 
None of us chose to be called into public life and leadership precisely when the American dream was at its greatest level of risk in our history. What will absolutely be our fault is if we don't do something about it. And the gift we have to the next generation is to allow the movements that we lead, the organizations that we lead, to be a kind of nurse log protecting, protecting the seedlings uh, of the next movement and providing sustenance and support as they grow. So, you know, what I hope, when I think about what we did in SeaTac in Seattle, when I hope, when I think about the Workers' Lab, is that the Workers' Lab will be to the next labor movement what the CIO was to the last one, and that the struggles against income inequality in SeaTac in Seattle will be viewed 40 years from now the way we today view Selma and Montgomery in the struggles for civil rights. Amen, and thank you all. Thank you. Next events in this series. We really appreciate your being here, and thanks again to our terrific panel and to Cruz.